Welcome to KCADV's certification series. You're listening to Module 5, Part 2, Co-Occurrence of Domestic Violence and Substance Use. We hope you review the materials that have been sent, or you can check out certification.kcadv.org forward slash Moodle. Hello, everyone. Welcome to KCADV's certification series. This is module five, and I have Stephanie Ratliff from the University of Kentucky with me today. And we had previously, there was a, another section of, of module five where we were talking about crisis and trauma. And now we want to talk a little bit about substance use and some mental health and just sort of give folks a a little bit of an introduction so that we can be the best advocates we possibly can be. And as Stephanie mentioned to me last night when we were sort of talking through this, we really want to model good practice because it's something that we often ask as we're doing support groups ourselves or we're meeting with people individually. How do we get people just to hone in to the present moment to get people in a grounded space so that we can really start having some honest and intentional conversations and Advocates can sometimes be the worst clients, right? We're not always the best at self-care. We're not always the best at sort of taking moments for ourselves to bring us to the present moment. So, Stephanie, you want to lead us a little bit into a a conversation? Yeah. So, all of you out there listening, you may be having a lot of different thoughts running through your mind as you're, you know, getting ready to settle into this talk. But let's come into the present for a moment. And one of the things that we like to do with folks is something called grounding. And that's something maybe we'll talk about it later. But it's important to connect in the present. And one way we can do that is with our different senses. How we taste things, things that we smell, things that we touch, things that we see, things that we can listen to. Okay. So we're going to just, Diane and I are going to share a little bit with you about things that help us be grounded that we listen to. So oftentimes, sometimes with clients, survivors that I've worked with over the years, we will, over the course of the time that we're together, talk about what would be on your playlist, like your essential playlist for your life, like a music playlist, whether you use Spotify or you use an old-fashioned cassette tape or a CD taking you all way back now, I'm kind of aging myself. But Diane, what would be a song that would be on your essential like music playlist? Well, you know, this stumped me just a teeny bit because as I was sharing a little bit before, I'm not the best at sort of listening at the meaning behind songs, but songs really can change my emotion and they can right. take me to certain times and places in my life that make me happy. So my choice for this one was Rolling Stones, Waiting on a Friend. Mm. I just really like that song. It just sort of makes me feel kind of, you know, easy and relaxed and slows me down. And I just really, I sort of love that song. I love that one, too. I do. That's a good one. And I've not thought about that song in a long time. So I'm glad I gave you that little gift today. Right. I may have to steal your idea and add it to my playlist. And I think I'll probably end up putting it on Spotify on the way home today. So you might have to teach me how to do that. I don't know how to do that. You made me grin when you said make cassette tapes because I, you know, it was such a nice thing when people would give you a playlist cassette tape. I said, we have a mutual friend, Rhonda, and she made me a holiday playlist cassette tape. And it makes me so, well, actually it might be a CD, but it makes me so happy. And I thought, 
This can be such a cool thing, again, that you do with the, with the women mm-hmm. that you work with, but also with your peers of making a playlist for them. It was such a sharing moment. Yeah. So you took the time, you thought about them, right. you thought about what makes them sort of special. Yep. Yeah. I think a hard thing, though, about creating your own playlist is narrowing down because a lot of us have lots of songs or music that we like. So the one I'm going to identify today is a song by the Dixie Chicks called Wide Open Spaces. I like that song. I think it's just very uplifting and it helps you think about possibilities in life and how exciting that can be. And it's just a good song. It is a good song. We listened to that song. My husband and I took a trip cross country Mm. and we listened to that and Johnny Cash. I think we listened to those two CDs all the way from here to like Colorado. So, yeah. And see, the music helps you remember and connect to things that, like you said earlier, happen in life. And so for all of you out there listening, think about a song that makes you think about something positive or a moment that you like to kind of reminisce on. But if you've never made yourself your own playlist, think about doing that. That's a way to take care of yourself and you can pull it out in good times or in tougher times. And it helps you just kind of you know, keep things in perspective. It's a nice way maybe too to unwind on your way home or coming into mm-hmm. work just to sort of rejuvenate yourself and and sort of take a little, you know, do a little separation from some heavy stuff that you've been listening to before you kind of go home or, or vice versa, just to sort of gear yourself up. So good. that's so important to have those processes. Yeah. I tell people, think about, you know, when you're on your way into work, if you pass a bus station or a certain kind of building, Think about, okay, I'm, I'm officially kind of starting work. And then when you leave and you pass by that particular site on your way home, you're gone. You know, works, we're leaving work back at work and I'm cranking up my playlist and I'm transitioning. I'm transitioning to home and getting myself there. And that's part of setting good boundaries that will help you stay in this work a longer that's amount of time. Just sort of a symbolic, mm-hmm. you know, for a visual person. That's For a visual person. Yeah. 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 So may, if you're the listening person, maybe you use that playlist. If you're the visual, you're looking for that bus stop or what other building you may run by, or maybe it's you keep, you know, spearmint gum in your car and you pop that in because you're a taste person. I don't know. Yeah. Just whatever works. Whatever works for you. Take some time to explore. That's right. Nice. Good. So we're going to get into this conversation if you're ready. The bulk of it really is going to be talking about substance use and the impact that that might have with the women that we're working with and the correlation between that and domestic violence, intimate partner violence. And so, Stephanie, a little bit, why are we even talking about this? Like, what is the scope? Is there a strong correlation between victimization and substance use? Or is it, what's your thoughts on that? You know, those who are listening to this podcast, you may be thinking or questioning us, thinking, I decided to do this work because I wanted to help survivors of intimate partner violence. Why are we talking about substance use? And it's because it's an issue that many of the folks that we serve and work with face. And we want to be programs that offer access and safety to all people who need it, not just those that don't have a substance use issue or have things going on in their life that for whatever reason, youth, they may not be worthy of services. So let me talk to you a little bit about the correlation. One thing I want to make sure everyone understands is Not all survivors use substances. In fact, many, many do not use substances at all. 
So be clear about that. However, we know that women who, and survivors, be it women, men, who experience violence or any kind of trauma, really, have higher rates of drug use, illicit drug use, and substance use, alcohol use. We know that. There's study after study that will solidify that. We know that's true here in Kentucky, too. Uh, If you were to talk to your director at your program or administrative folks, leaders in your program, they can even share with you the numbers of folks that come in who are report using substances, alcohol or drugs, whenever they come into the program. So we know that that exists. There are studies that talk about really the range of use by survivors who access domestic violence programs. It really ranges and it depends on the study, but we've seen numbers that range from like 22% up to 72%. Depends on how the study is done. And there have also been studies that have been conducted where we look at exit interview information, even client records from domestic violence shelters where survivors talk about and indicate working on their substance use, needing to work on their substance use. So we know that that's a need that survivors have as well. Another piece of information that's really key, maybe one of the most important things for you to take away from this podcast today, is that substance use does not cause intimate partner violence. Does not cause it. There is a strong correlation, as Diane mentioned earlier. So when we see instances of intimate partner violence, many times their substance use being is a factor sometimes, whether it's the perpetrator or the abuser is using, maybe the survivor is using. So we see that correlation there, but it's not a causal correlation because we know that there are many abusers who don't use substances at all. So we can't say that causes domestic violence. Do some abusers use alcohol and drugs? Yes. Do some survivors use? Yes. So that's a little bit about that correlation, but we know that that's true. And when we think about what we know, too, from research is that in substance use treatment centers and providers, women specifically who have been interviewed over the years, they often report intimate partner violence in their past. So we know it's a bi-directional relationship sometimes. If you use substances, you may be a little more likely to be a a victim or experience intimate partner violence. And I think we're going to be digging into the reasons behind that as we go along today. But if you are a survivor of intimate partner violence, you may also be more likely to develop some uh, use to help you cope with the what's going on in your life and the abuse and trauma. And I think we're going to be elaborating on that today some too, so I won't go too far ahead. Okay. No, you're good. You know, I think if anything, just as we begin to, as we move forward in this conversation, I don't think that talking with someone about substance use should just sort of be left on the table. And if it comes up, it comes up. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. We're wanting to really build some skill with our advocates to begin to look for signs, begin to open up the conversation. How do you open up that conversation? And knowing even as you said, it's not causal. Certainly safety can be compromised if a person is, you know, under the influence. Safety can be compromised if the abuser is using because it can sometimes escalate the intensity of the violence. And one thing is I was sort of reviewing some of the material 
that I have to say I've not done a very good job on is if I have a person who, from best as I can tell, is not currently using or struggling with use getting in the way, let's say, Mm -hmm. but I know that there's intimate partner going on in their history or currently, I've never really prepared for the vulnerability of maybe looking for substances to cope, whether that is you know, drugs or alcohol or prescribed Mm -hmm. drugs or alcohol. I've never done any really sort of prep work to be interesting to me, but I've never done really any prep work of this is not an uncommon tool to reach for, to deal with the, the emotions and the feelings. And so as an advocate, how do we talk about that as we're, as we're moving forward? Does that make sense what I'm saying? It absolutely does. I think, I think what I'm hearing you say is it's important that we discuss and think about how do we bring up and just kind of move into the space to have conversations with people about possible use or even if they're in recovery and how do we do that well and what are some tips and ideas for that and we can certainly go there today. That's exactly. Thank you so much for that. I sometimes need people to tell me what I'm saying because I'm a little, I can be all over because I'm like trying to put all the ideas, like I have these dots in my head. And then sometimes I just need somebody to sort of succinctly (laughs) come in. And I also would like to touch on a bit of, it can be really difficult for a person to disclose that they are struggling with substance use. They're afraid that they might not be able to access services. They're afraid that they might be asked to leave the domestic violence program. Right. So so can you talk a little bit about barriers sometimes that programs might unintentionally maybe put up, might have the best, we talked about intentions in the last one, best of intentions to maybe deal with the issue. But sometimes if we go at our speed and not their speed, we can sometimes put these barriers up for an individual. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yes, I would love to, because the first step is to make sure that people can access programs. And if we don't make it clear that that's something we want to happen, then there's a group of folks, a population out there who can't access. And that's not what we want, because we're in it to help support people as they're trying to achieve some safety and remove themselves from crisis. So one of the first things is just making sure that Anything that a survivor, as they're considering coming into shelter or accessing outreach services or just calling our domestic violence programs for help, that we have some indications in materials, uh, be it on the website, on social media, on brochures, that really indicate, you know, all people are welcome to come here. And I know in one of the local programs, and Greenhouse 17 is one that does it, I know when I go to your website, I can see that there is a paragraph, some phrasing on there about we know that people, you know, it's hard to cope with intimate partner violence or domestic violence. And, you know, this is a safe place to heal. And I think you mentioned, you know, that you may use drugs or alcohol. And this is a safe place to heal and we can help you with that healing. So that is kind of an, it kind of makes a survivor who's considering going to shelter or reaching out to the Greenhouse 17 for services. It lets them know, we know this is happening. We know this could be you that this is happening to. Come on over. We're happy to help you. We try. We're not here to fix you, but we know that happens. So you're putting it out there and normalizing the fact that We know substance use could be going on and that you can come here. That's not a problem. Come on in. So 
a lot of times the barrier can be how we message or not messaging that. And certainly we don't want to say we're substance use treatment providers. That's not what this is about. But you want to let folks know that we know there's a lot of issues that may be going on and come on in. We don't want that to be holding you up. And one of that's one of the reasons that's such a big issue for survivors is if you use, let's say you even have a substance use disorder, there's a tremendous amount of stigma. And when I say stigma, I mean people shame you. People tell you you're not worth getting services or we don't want your type around here. And so the stigma is very powerful and can keep people from accessing safety and services. It's a tremendous barrier to survivors also when they're thinking about and considering or need to call law enforcement for help or to go to the courts to get an emergency protective order or seek a domestic violence order to help them with achieving safety because they're afraid they're going to be judged about their use. And it's really a valid concern that they have. They very well may be judged because people judge all the time about that. So can we talk a little bit about that when you're working with an individual and you're starting to build that safety plan, right? We all do safety plans with our folks. We sometimes build safety plans on sort of a false narrative of, you know, right, of the, you know, in the perfect world. And we need to really be honest with what is going on in an individual's life at the moment, what a person is capable of of putting together in a plan, you know, who are their resources, what activities are going around. So again, we can get really laser focused sometimes on the, on the abusive person, but there's more to an individual's safety than just that person. Substance use in my mind can be one of the tantamount things that can really make a person vulnerable or the children. You know, so so I guess two things, and we can circle back to it as well. I want to not forget, we sometimes have our own bias and judgment, particularly around mothers, right? You know, oh, we're, yes. we're hard on moms. Oh, yes, we are. We're hard on them. And so I also think there's a point where we need to, as advocates, really look at ourselves. And as much as you said, come on in, we know you experienced this. We need to believe that. Like, we right. need to honestly believe that to be true. But let's go back to the safety plan piece. Building a safety plan with someone who who is an active addiction or active use or have been sober, but it's not quite, you know, we're, we're not solid in that right. sobriety. What does that look like? Well, it really has to be individualized. I'm going to go back to what I said in the previous podcast that no cookie cutter approaches, especially when it comes to doing safety planning, individualize it. So if you can just remember to individualize your safety planning with the survivor in front of you, you'll be okay. And to use that word again, holistic. Think about the person as you're doing safety planning in a very holistic manner. Do they have children? You got to talk about that when you do the safety planning, right? Do you use substances? Are you actively using? And if you are, we've got to talk with them about that. And I know that may seem really out of the box, but we can do out-of-the-box things, and we need to. That's part of individualizing. So knowing that they use, knowing some about what they use, and safety planning around that can be very tailored to them. And what I mean, I guess the best way to kind of discuss that is to use some examples. If someone is an IV drug user, a lot of times they have patterns about when they think they might use, where they often will 
um, shoot up. And so we want to help them think through, okay, you've told me you're using. I know that. We've had these conversations. And that's happening right now. So let's plan around that because I'm worried that when you're using, that's going to make you more more vulnerable. Even though you have this domestic violence order that says your perpetrator or abuser can't come around or shouldn't be, I'm worried that they know your patterns of use and where you use and who you use with, and they will take out that opportunity to hurt you in some way. So let's safety plan around that. Okay, so, you know, you shoot up, let's say, you know it's going to happen on weekends. Let's say at least once on Friday, once on Saturday. Depends on the individual. Talking them through that, where do you usually do that at? Who's around you? Is there somebody around that you can say, keep an eye out for him? Can you provide a copy of your domestic violence order to somebody who's often with you when you use? And again, I know that this is not ideal, what I'm describing. Like you're probably sitting here listening and you're thinking, well, they just really don't need to be shooting up. But that's not the reality of substance use and addiction. We can see that and say that and think that all day long, but it's just not the reality of where some people are at. Now, also having them think through about needle exchanging. If they also use opiates, heroin, for example, doing some safety talking about, okay, do you have uh, a safety kit like some naloxone or Narcan that a friend would be able to get out and help you, you know, if you tend, if you're going to overdose? Those are really hard conversations, but need to be had if you can get to that place. The best way to kind of get used to that is practicing with your coworkers or, you know, just easing yourself into that. Because I know, I know that these are really, really difficult, but it's part of the safety planning. When you're working with folks and you start from a presumption of what a person's activities are and you miss all that. Like I, one of the first things when I started doing shelter work in, in a domestic violence program 15-ish longer years ago, I had this presumption of who the women were that were coming to shelter. And in my head, in a very naive way, the relationship was ended. They were determined that the relationship was ended and there was no intention that there was any communication back and forth. Like I'm being a little extreme, but I was kind of in that space. And so if I'm safety planning with a person in that mindset, but I'm not preparing for, we're still having some conversation because we might be thinking of, of, reconnecting or we've got to exchange children or, you know, so many things. If I'm cutting out that whole section of possibility when I'm talking about safety planning, I don't have a very good plan, right? And so it's like having a fire drill, but you're presuming there's never going to be a fire. So, you know, there's really not a whole lot going on. I think the same with substance use and it is odd and it's almost like you're giving permission to do it. But I will say from the multiple trainings that I've gone to and listening to you right now, when you're doing kind of harm reduction work, you can build relationships with folks to really talk about what's happening. Where do your children go? Do you have Narcan with you? You know, what is your safety around, you know, going to these places and using both in the substance use and in the abusive person? But what I believe I'm hearing is if the trust can start to being built the movement for sobriety comes on quicker. If we just aren't talking about it and we're just avoiding the subject, then we're not dealing with the matter at hand. So I think we have a better outcome with folks in their sobriety and, and domestic violence if we open up the conversation, not if we pretend it doesn't exist and ignore it. Absolutely. And it's about being authentic advocates 
It doesn't that was a good word. Oh, yeah. authentic yeah. advocates. It doesn't help the survivor at all if they're using and we just ignore that because we don't know what to do with it because it's going to cause recidivism. I mean, and again, it's about looking at the person holistically. But you talking about starting the work in domestic violence shelter and some of the naivete that kind of goes along with that, you're not unusual at all. I w- had the same experience and was had very different expectations of the survivors that would. And then after you're there for a week or so, you're like, oh, well, I was just completely wrong. And those of you who are listening and you're just starting this work, that's okay. It's We all learn and you'll learn as you go along. But people, you know, have a lot of different challenges in their life, health problems, mental health problems, financial problems, and substance use is one of those. That's true for our entire population across the U.S. And survivors are no different. They, they use too. So we have to remember that. I'm glad you said that. It's no different really than the rest of the population. Certainly trauma adds to it. Right. But there's a lot of folks that are not in our shelters that use or just go out on a Friday night or Absolutely. whatever. But we can have some strong judgment on people that we are working with of of their drinking or drug choices or prescription drugs, you know. Yeah. And so Darlene Thomas, who's the director of Greenhouse 17, will often go, you know, look at yourself in the mirror, right? Like, so as you're kind of pointing fingers at other folks, we're no different, right? So so always sort of do that sort of self-reflection work and not uh, marginalize folks that are needing help or, or putting it into terms of deserving and undeserving folks. Nope. Everybody experiences it differently. Meet folks where they're at. That's right. Remember, everybody's worthy of safety and nothing that you do, or this is the mindset that I work from and I think most of our programs do as well, nothing you can do as an individual justifies somebody hurting you. Nothing. That includes using substances. You mentioned a little bit, and we don't have to go into great lengths about it because you you kind of already said it, but I just wanted to um, perk people who are listening the importance of understanding the perpetrator. We focus a lot on the behavior of the victim, but really using your time when you're establishing that history, when you're setting kind of goal planning, when you're connecting with a with the survivor in front of you, really ask questions about perpetrator behavior. And this really can show up with substance use. How somebody might be vulnerable, where they go, is substances used as a way of um, keeping them stuck in the relationship? Were they their dealer, right? Like I, I've had a lot of women that'll come forward and say, I couldn't leave because this was my habit and this was my supplier. So I really couldn't leave. And if I did leave, then they were going to report me to the police or I was going to lose my kids. And it gets really, really complicated. So so no, start asking questions about the perpetrator behavior around substances as well. Absolutely. So there's so many important little chunks of information that you shared just now that we could talk about forever, but I want to touch on some that are really important. Oftentimes, sometimes survivors are more likely to be able to talk some about their abuser. So that is one way that you can start kind of getting into that topic of conversation about substance use. You know, did your partner, ex-partner ever use alcohol? Did they use drugs? And you'll be surprised at what folks will share. And that's talking about somebody else, the abuser, not themselves. Okay. So sometimes they find that a little easier to talk about. 
we have to remember that, as you mentioned, the abuser is often very connected and intertwined with the dynamic of substance use that may be happening for an individual. We know that abusers are often the people who introduce survivors to use, not necessarily alcohol use, because a lot of people, you know, may do that. But when we look at more kind of a heavy, severe types of um, drug and alcohol use, so moving up into no longer just using marijuana, but going on to use heroin, you know, and using things in different ways of it being administered, the perpetrator plays a really significant role in that because they know that anything they can do to develop more power and develop more control over a survivor, they'll do it. And that includes introducing them to substances, getting them addicted to substances, being their dealer, and all the manipulation that comes around with that. They play a key role in that. And don't forget it. And it's something we should be asking about. If you really slow survivors down sometimes and listen to their stories and how that unfolds and then talk to them about use, you often will notice that, you know, as the abuse got worse, their substance use also escalated. And that's not, you know, an unusual experience. That correlation happens for different reasons. Also, and there's a great in your... Those of you who are listening, there'll be some materials that you'll be able to access and refer to. And one of the things that are in those materials is a power and control wheel that is specifically designed to help you walk through how are drugs and alcohol used to exert power and control. And as Diane said, sometimes the abuser is the dealer. And if that's who you go to to get your substance, it's not you just can't really walk away from that. Because you will maybe go into withdrawal, depending on how severe your use is or addiction, how far, far along that substance use disorder is. They may also be threatening you, you know, if you use or if you don't use, then they make you feel bad if you use. So it's very intertwined. And when it should also be one of the motivations for trying to Talk some with folks who come into shelter and survivors. Talk with them about their use, because as long as that's happening, it can make them more vulnerable for further incidents and just make it difficult to be safe. Thank you for that. And so as you're working with someone or maybe somebody is called, you know, they're calling in for services or calling that crisis line, they're wanting maybe to, you know, shelter might be the option or, or just programming, but I guess I am probably thinking housing or, or shelter programming. And you're getting an indication, you're picking up on cues that a person may be under the influence or things that they're talking about makes you, you'll become more savvy in this work to sort of pick up on things. Sometimes the story doesn't quite align and not necessarily because of trauma, but just you will just sort of pick up on that stuff. Or the person might just say, we're getting really good at building trust and rapport 
conference and you're asking those questions, if you have a chance to listen to anything of Patty Bland, right. I love Patty Bland. She's passed away, sadly, but I, I love her. But she talks a lot about how we ask the questions that makes it more normal for a person to come forward. So as opposed to, do you use drugs or alcohol? Tell me what drugs and alcohol you use. It's a much different way of saying it, and you will elicit such different answers. But if you're beginning to sense that, for the newer advocate, or actually for the seasoned advocate, I think there's always discussion on, do we need to take care of the substance use first, and then the domestic violence? Do we take care of the domestic violence first, right? Safety's paramount, but if we can't make much further plans because the substances keep getting in the way, we can't make solid decisions, we can't go get a job, like we're just not at a functioning place, it's that bad. Do you have any suggestions, or do they happen, or are they co-occurring? We take care of the domestic violence and the substances at the same time. Or are you gonna tell me it's individual to every person you are? I can tell by your face. Here's my take on that. And I think um, most people who've been doing this work would agree with me. You can't wait on one or the other to be nice, neatly wrapped up and all taken care of before you work on the other one because they do co-occur. And the co-occurrence is not just that both could be happening at the same time, but they have co-occurring negative impacts and consequences at the same time. And if you're using substances and you're using, as you described, to a pretty, you know, a, a pretty, a point that is harmful to your life, interfering with your functioning, whether that's caretaking with kids, keeping a job, qualifying for housing, legal problems related to it. If you have all those things going on, no matter how good of a job the advocates and staff at Greenhouse 17 or another program in the state do, if those other things are going on, it's going to make it really difficult for that survivor to achieve stability with housing, to keep a job so that she can be more financially independent and work on those financial goals and parent. And so you really, we can't really work on one and not the other when we know that both exist. Sometimes we don't know and it takes a while to figure that out. There used to be a lot of arguing of between providers though of, oh, you've got to get substance use treatment first until you get sober and in recovery. You can't work on being safe. Well, that's not true. I mean, how can you work on getting into recovery and going into residential treatment when your perpetrator won't even let you leave the house for an hour to go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting? Right. You can't separate the two into silos. Doesn't mean you have to be an expert advocate at both things. It's more about paying attention, asking and encouraging survivors to talk about both, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And I think it's something as your team and your own program gets together to sort of talk about how you do handle things. Because I think we do sort of put out the language often of we know that, that folks often have substance use issues, safety is paramount. But we sometimes present a little bit differently. We're going to do room searches of the shelter program. And even though the room search might be that you're looking for things and you know that that doesn't mean an automatic departure. Right. But people are going to go, oh, my gosh. Right. So our messaging sometimes can be a zero tolerance when really our intention might not be zero tolerance. 
or it could be. And if you are that, then, then I'm not saying that you can permit all kinds of drugs and alcohol to be Mm -mm. in the shelter program. You've got little ones running around. You have other folks that are trying to stay sober. And so you don't want to get in the way of that. But we've recently been trying to be conscious of not putting out there messaging that we're a sober living environment because we thought the messaging then wasn't fair to other folks who would get frustrated because drugs or alcohol were coming in the building. So we don't want that and we'll look for it. And there's going to be a conversation if there is, or maybe to go to treatment or depending on the situation, what it could be. But why set us up for this false reality you can't even keep drugs and alcohol out of a prison. I don't know how we, you know, I don't right. know how we can expect to keep it out of a shelter. Doesn't mean we condone it. But at the same time, we want to work around it. We want to have a conversation about it. We want to help people around it versus this is bad. And if and if it comes to our attention, there's going to be a punishment around this behavior. But it is complicated, you know, it, because you have to weigh the needs of the house versus the need of the individual. And that's where I think you just have to really dig in deep and and make sure that you're not doing things as a quick reaction or a punitive place, but that you're really trying to help this individual overcome things that have, you know, put them in the spot. And something you mentioned earlier was Patty Bland's approach that a lot of us have learned from and adapted to taking the action and the approach that is more universalizing or normalizing with the assumption that everybody uses and then kind of coming down from that. And so what I mean as an example, everybody, when after you get to a point and somebody enters shelter or an outreach service and you're talking with them, at some point you're going to ask some questions to help do a better job to be a better advocate. And that can include, like, who do you have for support? Questions around that. It can include, you know, what kinds of child care do you have? Do you go to counseling? You know, a wide variety of questions. But something we can ask everybody after they get settled into the program is, so how much alcohol do you drink, let's say, a week? And if there's silence, you can just repeat the question. How much do you drink? Beer, you know, cocktails. About how many a week do you have? And then people may be silent for a minute. Then they'll say, well, I'd say probably a week I might have about three three drinks. So you've answered that question. For some survivors, as we mentioned earlier, not everybody uses, not everybody drinks. So if you try a couple of times and they keep saying, well, I don't drink, well, I don't use alcohol, I've never had a cocktail, you let it go and you move on to the next thing. You want to also ask that question around drugs. And we use the word substances a lot in the podcast, but it's drugs. Illicit drugs, prescription drugs, uh, legitimately prescribed prescription drugs. You want to ask about those too. Tell me about what all you use. Do you, you know, do you have any prescriptions you're using? Do you use marijuana? Just ask it straight up and ask it to everybody. Don't make assumptions that somebody who looks this way or who is a certain race or a certain age that they're using in that the person who appears to be 50 doesn't use, so I don't need to ask them. Don't make those assumptions because that's what get, that gets us into trouble. But ask. Ask everybody like Patty Bland directed us to, and then we're more likely we get that conversation rolling. We encourage them. That, and then we can talk to them about, okay, so you are taking this kind of opioid, you know, that's being prescribed to you. 
let's talk about do where's a safe place that you can store that while you're here because we want to make sure kids don't get into that would you rather us keep it you know offering them those options and having those conversations oh you smoke let me tell you we've got a designated place here at the shelter we want people to go to for that because we've got kids here and it's a smoke-free environment. So opening up those conversations and letting people know what are the resources here. If somebody ends up telling you, oh, I don't drink, but I used to drink, but I'm, I've been sober since 15 years. Well, that's going to be an important person to let them know that this can be a, a little bit of a challenging place sometimes if you're in recovery because it's a different atmosphere and we want to make sure you've got support around you know, we do take a group of women or survivors to NA meetings on this night. We take folks to AA meetings on this day. Let us know if you need a ride to get to one of those. Or let us know if you need to talk to somebody if you're feeling like, you know, you're having a hard time with, um, you know, managing your recovery today. And look, you and I talked about this maybe, I don't know, how long did that go on? Four minutes or something? Yeah. You can do that in as quickly as that much time. Absolutely. Don't make a big deal out of it. Just ask. Yeah. Encourage them to come to you. Yeah. Because that, as you pointed out, it's hard. It's a, it's very hard. You got kids in program. You don't want a kid watching or seeing somebody overdose. Right. You don't want somebody watching somebody shooting up. I wouldn't if I, my kids, you know, nobody wants that for their kids. So how do you work that? You let people know about the resources. You open up that door so they come and talk to you when they're struggling. Maybe they won't. I know I'm making it sound easy. It's not easy. I know this is really difficult. It is hard work. And I, I also want to really encourage advocates that are listening in. So much of the work can be happened by those small moments that you begin to build relationship and trust. It's not just during the group. It's not just during the individual session that you've scheduled on Tuesdays and Thursdays with that person. But all those nuanced times that you have with someone, don't miss those opportunities as you're helping someone get kids ready for school or you're helping someone do dishes or you're, you know, outside playing kickball or doing whatever it is you're doing. Use those times to build trust so that you have the, it's almost an honor that someone bestows upon you to be able to trust you with some really scary, serious stuff that they themselves sometimes have a hard time admitting as well. For some reason, when you were talking and you were saying, don't forget to ask, you know, don't presume who you know who's using and who doesn't, right? We say that with domestic violence folks all the time. Don't presume you know what's going on at someone's home. All of a sudden, I'm, I'm throwing us way back. Did you ever read The Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan? Oh, yes. Right? Yes. So, so if you've never read The Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan, it's an oldie but a goodie. Read it. Uh, read it. You know, get your historical foundation in this work. But one of the things they had like opened up some, all the women's purses, you know, as sort of a research. And they were finding, you know, so many women were having those after work cocktails or yeah. cocktails before their husband came home because right. a lot of women were stay at home and they all had prescription, prescription right. drugs of whatever was in the day. I don't right. know, Xanax or Valium, whatever. Yes. And so we thought, right, the fifties were this beautiful time of everybody had two cars and a house and we were all back from World War II. But really the women were all not in a happy place. No. They had no control over their lives. No. And they were all having a few cocktails too many and numbing themselves That's to right. a very unhappy life. Getting ready for the <laughs> round two of when that husband comes home. That's right. And, uh, you know, we do a lot of different things to cope. Some of us eat a lot. That's me. Some of us exercise a lot. Some of us shop a lot. Some people use. And 
We just are doing what we do to survive life and cope and work through life. And survivors are no different. They've got a lot more, they got a lot of challenges. So they're just trying to make it work, be there for their kids or just be there for even if they don't have kids. Absolutely. And also don't rush to the point that because someone uses, they all need to go to residential treatment. Not everybody needs to go to residential treatment. Just for some clarity, you have some really good just definitions in your PowerPoint. And part of the reason I wanted to bring them up is I do think that some of them are on the test and we want to make Lisa Gabbard happy, even though I'm sure folks will will read their materials as well as as listen to this. But in substance use disorder, can we just sort of go through a little bit of, you've got like addiction, distortion, and perception, just sort of touch on some of those? Yes. So for folks who have gone beyond just using substances, because there's a lot of people who just use socially, you know, they'll have cocktails on the weekends or they use socially, and it doesn't really interfere with necessarily their functioning of life. But- When we start seeing the use interfere more with those daily responsibilities, be it keeping a job, being able to drive or, you know, work equipment, machinery, take care of children, or maybe your health is suffering because you use something, that's becoming more severe and it's getting closer to qualifying for, you know, using that diagnostic language of a substance use disorder of some sort. And there's a lot of different kind of criteria that we look at just to kind of inform us, you know, is somebody getting to a point where their use is more severe that we need to be more concerned about or help them be aware of? And so using when you know it's harmful, you know, using this even though you know that it's maybe going to cause some health problems or your safety is at risk because you're driving when you're under the influence. That's a sign, that's a piece of criteria that we'd want to, you know, when somebody's getting to that point, we want to be aware of that and help them be aware of that as well. Also, I mentioned withdrawal earlier today. People, if they've been using for a long time, be it alcohol, be it an illicit drug, also truly legitimately prescribed drugs, if people don't have that substance staying in their body, They can start with experiencing withdrawal symptoms. And, you know, you may be asking, well, what are what are those? What are withdrawal symptoms? Well, somebody might have the shakes or delirium tremors when they're starting to withdraw. They may have nausea, diarrhea, um, just shakes, hallucinations. So really bad feelings, um, you know, really bad physical feelings in in addition to the emotional and mental experiences that come with withdrawal. And when somebody doesn't use and they go into withdrawal, that's an indication to us that physically the substance use is pretty severe and we would use that more to lead us to the summation that there's a disorder there. Also, Tolerance is something I make sure I talk with people about. So, you know, the easiest way to explain that is to use an example. So if you and I, two years ago, we used to go, say, to a Mexican restaurant and we would enjoy one margarita and we felt a buzz. That's what we did two years ago. But now when you and I meet up on, let's say, Thursday night at the Mexican restaurant to have that same buzz we got to drink three margaritas 
we've increased our tolerance. We need more of the substance to feel that way physically and emotionally. So tolerance is another thing for us to pay attention to. So that's a little bit about substance use disorder. And again, people can develop all of those pieces that I just described, even if they're being prescribed, legitimately prescribed a substance. So when someone has an accident and they're in the hospital and receiving morphine, sometimes people can become dependent on morphine. Or when you're prescribed opioids to help alleviate physical pain, you can become dependent on that. The body learns to, you know, use that. So that's a point that's important to make, I think. I'm glad you brought up the prescription drugs, too. You brought it up in the beginning piece because I do think there's a, I don't know, a, a denial maybe, both by staff and people that we work with. Of, I don't even need to address the prescription side of things. A doctor has given that to us. That's just fine. But we sometimes see a lot of folks come in with lots of prescription drugs. And so has there been a long-term pain management that's going on? We have sometimes a very transient community of folks, not always, but sometimes that they're seeing different doctors. I know there's better communication now between you know, who's prescribing what. And, and if you go to Lexington and then you go to Louisville or you go to, you know, Paducah, you know, that that should sort of follow. But I do sometimes worry that because we're seeing multiple doctors, we're getting multiple diagnosis and multiple different types of, of prescription medication that might not be partnering well with each other, or you've just been on it too long. You know? Right. Yeah. Right. And, you know, a good provider would work with you on that and things and, you know, help somebody come off that or ease off of it. But we know that doesn't always happen. We've got, you know, these billion dollar lawsuits around the prescription drug makers right now that's all in the news. And it's definitely a money making business in some ways. And the other thing we had to remember is that for survivors, a lot of them do experience severe physical injuries, severe due to violence and abuse. And when that happens and you go to an emergency room or you go to your provider or end up in the hospital, you're going to be prescribed an opiate or another type of painkiller oftentimes, and you need it. But some women I've worked with have described, you know, I got that and I used it and I probably could have stopped using it because I was starting to heal physically, but it helped me escape. So I kept using it. And then I ran out and they wouldn't give me any more. So I went to somebody else and I got another prescription. And it takes a while to get those, to hear those stories and for somebody to trust enough to tell you those stories. But it's, it does unfold that way sometimes because women are prescribed and survivors are prescribed prescriptions more because they have more physical ailments and violence. And so you're prescribed medicine. Another residual form of abuse that can take place due to the intimate partner mm -hmm. a lot more i don't mean to repeat exactly what you just said but due to the injuries to the body we often sometimes then get into a being prescribed substances that we never would have gone to um, but then it kind of it just keeps building the, the impact of the domestic violence just keeps building mm -hmm. yeah. it does it does it's a it's one more piece that's caused by the violence that we don't think about that a lot Go, getting back to my original question that i started off you know people are listening to this probably today and thinking why are we talking about substance use well when you're getting hurt by your abuser you may end up getting prescribed medication or you may have to have surgery or your jaw gets wired shut and there's lots and lots of other 
ugly pieces I could mention that I'm not going to because it's not necessary. But they're going to be prescribed medication for that, and it's going to be opioids or some other painkiller. And people get, it's easy to get hooked on some of those. Right. I know we're sort of coming to the end of our conversation. So I wanted to sort of end on, I liked the mini safety sobriety wellness plan that was sort of in the notes. And I just thought that would be a really good end piece of, as you're working with someone and you're creating the sobriety plan, these are kind of the topic points or the header points that you want to touch on. And something that you had said earlier, you were talking about somebody who had been sober for so many years. One thing I do want to just highlight, because I've experienced this in our own program, sometimes folks are, have been sober for, you know, six months. Amazing. You know, right. That's that, amazing. That's amazing. But sometimes we can feel kind of confident in our sobriety. It's kind of like me on a diet, right? I've been doing really good on this, but now I'm slipping because I'm overconfident that I can handle certain situations. So make sure as, as a seasoned advocate that we're all trying to be that because somebody has remained sober for a period of time that we don't let up the support system that they need right when you begin to feel you've got this tackled is when it can kind of creep back in. Certainly living in a domestic violence shelter can be an added stressor, in and out of relationships, having to go to court, all those things can be added stressors. So don't go, well, check, we've done this. Like we've got this under our belt. Now we're going to move on to other things. Keep honing in and touching base on the, on the sobriety. So yeah, a little bit of the sobriety wellness plan. So it's really about just again using my word. It's, I guess it's my word of the day: being holistic and attending to people. And so, if somebody is in recovery, full blown recovery, and they're sober and they don't use anymore, that's awesome. You can't think though. Oh, check. No, it's really important to be focusing on their wellness and talking to them about that. Talking with them through, you know, the challenges while they're at shelter. The stress that can contribute to, um, you know, maybe put their recovery a little more at risk. So you got a court date coming up next week. That can be kind of tough. Let's talk about how to up your wellness and things as we prepare for that. So really attending to that and making sure that people have what they need and that they know about the resources that the programs offer, be it yoga, be it artwork or quilting be it get outside and walk, go to something more formal like the 12-step meetings that may be available. You want to talk to a counselor, we can hook you up with that. Really letting them know about that full array of resources and talking with them. You know, this is very basic, but just like you would make a grocery list. Okay, let's talk about what's coming up in the next week. What do you need to help you do well? What do we need to do to make that happen? And if they're like, well, I really need quiet time in the mornings by myself, peace and quiet. And I'm worried about how I'm going to get that when I'm sharing a room with this family. Okay, let's sit down and talk about how do we strategize around that and make sure we can try to figure out a way to get that. And I know for people listening, you're thinking, gosh, this is really hard. There's so many people we serve and how do we do this? Again, give yourself some grace. And we don't expect perfection. Just trying to share ideas. But this is what we mean, having those simple conversations. What can we do while you're here to help you stay on track and, you know, have those conversations? Talking through about how to maybe reduce your use while you're in shelter, that's really kind of out of the box. Going there once again, 
But that's important because you're not going to be able to come and go constantly to go see a dealer and then come back and use. And, you know, that's just not how that's what doesn't need to happen. And so being having frank conversations about that, if you know enough about what's going on with the person to have those conversations about reducing harm and use while they're in there. And some people, when they come, it may be that you find you need to connect them with an outside provider for a while. And that's part of a, you know, this sobriety and wellness plan. Maybe they need to go somewhere and detox for a couple of days. So you support them in it and make sure they understand they can come back when they're done detoxing or whatever service it is that they're going to go to. Because sometimes people do need something a lot more significant depending on where they are in their use. I like that phrasing because sometimes we will recommend or it has been recommended that they go elsewhere to detox or maybe a 30-day plan or whatever. And we really try to frame it as this is just a part of our program too. Even though it's a different place, you're going to come back when you're exited from that program. So this is not a departure. This is just another step. This is another phase in that programming and you needed this, you know, you needed this component where not everybody else does. That's right. And just letting them, again, normalizing that, having those conversations. And, you know, they may be fearful when they hear about going to detox or to another program because maybe they've been working with an advocate for a long time and that's who they have connected with. And so, like you said, letting them know it's just another part of the program, another part of the process. We're still going to be with you. We're not going to leave you. You still get to do this other step with us and we're going to help you with all of that. So reassuring them that and really putting this together in a good way. And that leads me to another part of the developing a safety and sobriety plan or a wellness plan. It's really important for advocates and our programs across the state to have some people that they really prefer to send survivors to. People, providers, professionals outside of the domestic violence programs who understand the dynamics of intimate partner violence, all of those pieces, you know, that can be caused and cause people problems due to the violence they've experienced. And so forming partnerships with people that we trust as advocates outside of the agency that we know if we send somebody to, they're going to take care of them and they know some because survivors have had some bad experiences sometimes with agencies that they don't want to go back to. So we can kind of, again, that's a lot of individualizing, but it's important. I think if we can have some trusted providers that we know we can, there are go-to places for survivors to go to. They can be great support for us too. So as you're you're newer in the advocate, bounce those ideas off folks, you know, ask them questions, you know, this is an ongoing educational piece that you will be doing in this work. And so, you know, hone in on skills, go talk to, you know, a recovery center, get more information on the impact on the body and the mind and, and the emotional well-being of, of substance use. This is always a, an, an endeavor that we continue to grow in. And I think that's sort of the exciting part about being in an advocate. It's really never complete, right? No. It's never done. We're always changing. We're always evolving. We're always learning new things. I've learned so much and I've got a lot of learning left to do and at the time you stop learning or you think you know it all you're kind of dangerous that's a good point that's a good point well Stephanie thank you so much for being here today and participating in KCADB certification series and um, we thank you all for listening in and tuning in and take care 
Welcome to KCADB's certification series, Module 5, Part 1, Trauma Response to Emotional Distress and Crisis. We hope you review the materials that have been sent to you, or you can check out certification.kcadv.org forward slash Moodle. Welcome everyone to KCADV's certification series, module five. I have a dear friend of mine in the room, Stephanie Ratliff with the University of Kentucky. We're gonna break this up into two different sections. So this first section you're listening to, we're calling trauma-informed responses to emotional distress and crisis. Something I think that might benefit everybody who's tuning in because it certainly is something we come into contact with as we're doing our advocacy work out with our member programs. And as I was talking to Stephanie last night, she said, Are we kind of kind of open with sort of a, you know, just sort of a check-in, sort of an emotional, sort of grounding place, make sure everybody is aware and prepared that sometimes we're talking about some, you know, some stuff that can trigger us, bring things up, you know, in us personally. And I said, huh, what a novel idea. Here we are doing advocacy work. And as typical, we often are the worst people at doing self-care and making sure that we ourselves are okay. So I was so thrilled that she brought that up. And I think this one we're sort of talking about, and it's called coming into the present moment. So Stephanie, I'm going to sort of turn this over to you to sort of lead us in a little bit of this conversation or mindfulness. Thank you, Diane. You are welcome. And thank you all for having me and inviting me up to do this. It's my first podcast. So you're looking good. Thank you. I wish people could see you. Thank you. I will tell everybody listening in, you're looking good. Oh, I appreciate that. Of course. So as you said, I think this work is really difficult. And we're going to be talking about some heavier topics today. Trauma, what that looks like, substance use, and it's important that we just kind of come into the present moment, as you mentioned earlier, and we're going to just kind of just settle in and get ready for these topics. So I want us to think about, and those out there listening, think about the last couple of days of your life and think at least about two things, two good things that have happened and just take a moment to focus on those and let's let's um, then share those a little bit. And Diane and I will share a good thing or two that's happened to us in the last couple of days. So do you want to go first, Diane? Or, be, or do you want me to go? It makes I, I'm happy to go if you want me to. Okay. I, I was thinking about it. Oh, good. Intro. Yeah. Good, good. And they're sort of small things, but they're not to me, right? And so one of those things in the midst of, you know, crazy COVID pandemic at the moment, I have a thankfulness that my 91-year-old stepfather and I meet every Saturday or Sunday and we go to like a McDonald's or something and we park under a tree and we have a good hour and a half, two hour chat like every weekend. And so I'm really thankful that even in kind of our bizarre upside down lives that he's healthy enough to do that. He's driving. Watch out. If you live in Lexington, watch out. But actually, <laughs> he's he's really pretty good. So he and his little dog, Gypsy, come over and... um and we just sort of have that really special moment. And then my other piece is my husband's birthday is today. So a little shout out to Ralph. Yes. Yeah. Happy yeah. birthday, Happy Ralph. Happy birthday. Yeah. You know, you mentioned something, though. 
you use the word small. And I think sometimes we fail to acknowledge that the small things that are good, when they all add up, and there's quite a few of them sometimes, we, we need to know and just kind of think about the power of those. And it's one of the reasons I like talking about this when we get started, because there can be a lot of tough things going on. We can also be Debbie Downers and kind of focus on the negative. So it's really important to think about even small things that are going well. So mine, if you don't mind me sharing, I just got to say, and maybe folks out there would think this is a small thing, but time with my dog on the weekends, sitting on the couch with Wilbur. Wilbur is great. With Wilbur. I've not met him in person, but thank goodness for social media. I feel I know Wilbur. Yes, he is lovely. And he just cuddles with me all weekend. And that's a good thing. You know, it's not like fireworks going off, crazy, awesome, like somebody got married or, you know, something like that. But it's it's a good thing that happened to me. And then on Friday, I was working at home and a friend texts me and she says, check your front porch. I've left something for you. So I go out there on a break and open the door and she's put out this big gift basket of fun things. She's put Starburst in there and a glitter bath bomb. And it was just that surprise. It wasn't about the material things she put in there, but it was about somebody thought about me and made the effort to come over and say, oh, I just wanted to give you a gift. And that's really nice. That so. is nice. That's kind of the sweetest thing. You know, and there's yeah. sort of two things in that, you know, is we're sort of doing little takeaways that small things really can rejuvenate us in some very hard and emotionally charged work, but also probably the act of giving. It was small things, but I bet that made your friend's day too. You know, she thought about it and she planned about it and she she know th- knew that that made you happy. And so I think it's something for us always to remember too, that little giving and that little sharing can be great. That's so right. So good. That was nice. It was a good way to start. Mm. I am feeling very NPR-ish right now. Are it's you? the good thing. Yeah, I am. But that's kind of good. It's a, it's a goal for me to reach to. So, oh, yeah. well, yeah. I'm glad so I can we'll help be, you reach you. your goals yeah. this morning. Thank you. Thank you. So I think we're ready to dig in a little bit. All right, let's dig in. Okay, all right. So to remind folks, we're going to talk a little bit about emotional distress and crisis. Hope that that exercise maybe kind of replenish folks, but it also is something to maybe use as you're working with individuals. Right? Absolutely. Right? That is something that you can totally, any survivor you're working with, trying to get them to come in and be present with you, whether you're doing counseling or getting ready to accompany someone to court, getting them to just kind of calm down or trying to and have them focus on what's going okay instead of the things that are running through their mind. It's not that you don't want to talk about those either, but this is a tool that you can use with any of the folks you're serving. So I think it's good. And in in any aspect that we're sort of doing that work, just to get people to get a little, breathe a little easier. Mm -hmm. So the first, I was looking at um, sort of the flow of past modules that have been done in person. And I think we always want to start a little bit with just sort of The conversation was a little bit on language and labels and diagnosis. And one thing caught my mind, but we can certainly go through them all, but it was disability justice. Mm. Can you talk just a little bit about that? I think it's something, 
I don't know. I don't know that everybody's familiar with that term. Okay. Um, and I also don't know if if everybody's always has that up in the forefront of the work that they're doing. So when we think about the topic of disability justice, it's really quite simple. And that is oftentimes when we think about a person, we don't talk about them in a holistic way. And often, especially folks who have an outwardly noticeable challenge physically, lay people and even professionals that work in social services or even the programs, domestic violence programs, may label people, oh, she's handicapped, or for example, uh, she's a deaf and mute. Well, that doesn't really honor the holistic person. Most of us don't want to be labeled, and so it's important to always put the person first, not the issue that's going on. So if I have attention deficit disorder, I don't want people to refer to me as that girl with the ADHD or that ADD girl, mom, wife, you know, I'm Appalachian. I'm so much more than just the person who may have attention deficit disorder. So also, it's just about being and acknowledging the rights of all people and making sure people feel worthy and that we treat everyone with dignity, especially in a field like this where folks have often experienced a lot of coercion, somebody else controlling their lives, putting them down. We don't want to be the people that do that when they come to us for services. There's often an issue, too, when we assign meaning behind things, too. So if we say, oh, there's the ADHD, you know, girl, you know, we sometimes put our own meaning behind what all that might entail. And we sometimes create a a person and a personality that is really not true of that individual. And it also it also is fascinating to me. We, we were led in like a workshop group at a staff meeting one time and the uh, facilitator said, kind of list three or four adjectives that you think describe yourself. And it was interesting to me what they sort of put it, what different people put as number one, because I would have had it wrong. I would have thought, oh, this would have been the one that they really sort of identify with or define with. Right. But it really was, you know, that they were an ant. And I would have said, oh, I would have thought it would have been this other thing over here. So when we jump to the conclusion, what is the makeup of an individual, we can really begin that whole relationship kind of on a false note. Because you sort of use the example of the ADHD person, can we talk a little bit about diagnosis? There's sort of pros and cons of diagnosis in the field that we're working with. And then also I want to sort of challenge advocates that are listening in. Most of us are not qualified to do diagnosis, but our community and this culture is really good at diagnosing people. And I or say they that with, th- or I, they think I, I they say are. that with great sarcasm. We're really good at sort of summing things up. And so as advocates and as professionals in this work, we really need to be careful to step back and not presume we know, oh, this person's borderline or this person's bipolar or this person, you know, is a has addiction or substance use issues, we need to slow that down. But can you talk a little bit about diagnosis? Yes. I'm so glad you brought up that topic. 
there's a lot of problems with diagnoses. And one of the main issues is, I think, especially with survivors of intimate partner violence or domestic violence, they're often incorrectly diagnosed. So when a provider sees them, maybe whether it's in counseling for the first time or maybe it's a provider in an emergency room, they often are diagnosed with things there at the spur of the moment without their experience of intimate partner violence being taken into consideration. Because if your, you know, hormone levels and things are kind of raging or in, in reaction to the trauma that you've experienced, that's about trauma. That's not borderline personality disorder. That's not attention deficit disorder because you can't focus and, cal- you know, really continue a conversation. That's about the experience of having gone through abuse and violence. And some providers are not good at teasing that out. So they get stuck with just this run-of-the-mill diagnosis. So to elaborate a little bit, it's really important to be centered on what the survivor understands about diagnosis. Do they use that language? Does it mean something specific to them? Does it help them understand what's going on? And so if they use that language, maybe it's okay for us too as providers and people who are serving them. But I think it's important to understand their view on that language and understand that people have a wide range of understanding. I talk about it as a continuum of do they use a diagnostic language when they talk about themselves, when they talk about their experiences, or do they not use that at all? And I think advocates should go along with what the survivor is doing, what makes sense to them. For some, it's helpful. You know, unfortunately, the way our system is to get certain kinds of counseling paid for through your insurance or your medical care or to be able to receive support like medication or talk therapy. Somebody along the way usually has to make a diagnosis in order for you to access those resources. And we know that as providers, but it doesn't have to be at the center of what we talk about and how we describe the individuals we're working with. In fact, I don't know why there's even a need to even talk about it at all unless there's a real specific event going on or situation that requires that. Why do we have to slap a label onto everyone? That's an interesting piece. You know, I I never even really thought about that of moving forward and having access to further care. Sometimes that diagnosis is required. It's one of my frustrations. We won't go off on the that in that's a frustration with I won't go off on a tangent on this, but we were talking with Meg Savage a couple of days ago for a podcast on on legal, civil and legal remedies. And it always sometimes can be frustrating to me that a person has to go through the court system to highlight other services. So I need an escort order. Well, to get an escort order, you got to get the protective order. Well, maybe the protective order might not be the best for me in my situation, but that's what I need. Or I need a security system or I need, sometimes you got to enter a system you didn't really want to, to get the other services that might trail behind. So that's an interesting statement that you made. 
One of the things too that that I noticed in our notes or the notes that you sent me is why can sharing experiences in the, in and of itself why can just sharing the experiences be helpful? And I thought a lot about this is a great deal what advocates do. And newer advocates, again, that I think might be listening in, often feel unqualified to tap into the really difficult, messy trauma experiences that a person is showing up at their door. So certainly the intimate partner violence, they might be adult survivors of child sexual abuse, Mm -hmm. they might have mental health, or they might have substance use issues. So a myriad of things. And here you've got this 24-year-old brand new advocate or even an older person but not as seasoned in the field going ah you know I don't I don't know what to do with all of this but I liked that it says sometimes just sharing stories can be really helpful and it it made me think of our support groups that we do you know just the individual advocacy how we can begin to reframe you know the resiliency that we see in folks cuz a lot of people show up at our doors and go you know, here I am, I'm 40 years old, my children have been removed by the cabinet, mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I've been in a 10-year abusive relationship, I'm not feeling too good about myself, right? Right. And so sharing that with other women or men and having those experiences, but also reframing of the strength that it took you to come in to the shelter. So as an advocate, Stephanie, like speaking to that kind of field of work, can you talk a little bit about the power of just sharing and opening up and being safe to open up your personal life stories? I think one of the most difficult pieces of having survived intimate partner violence is oftentimes you feel very lonely and isolated. You may not share your story with family, friends, if you go to church or another place where you worship sitting down and talking about what happens at home and the abuse and violence, you may feel ashamed. Not that you should, I'm not saying that, but the way our society works, a lot of stigma, a lot of shame. So there's not natural places to talk about what's going on. And when folks appear in shelter or just even for outreach services, it's important that we give them that opening and that invitation about what do you want to talk about and see where they go with that and encourage them to tell their story when they're ready, if they're ready, and in any way that they want to tell that story and be a listener. We need to know as advocates, it's very easy when you're early in this work to kind of almost have a cookie cutter approach a list of things that you want to tell every survivor you work with, or but we don't want to be cookie cutter. We want to individualize to people. And we have to understand everybody's story is different. One common thread that many of them have, of course, is there's somebody in their life who tries to control and exert power, and they're just mean and nasty. And we're not going to be anything like that. We also want to, when we listen to their story, it gives us an opportunity as advocates to highlight their strengths, help them recognize that. Because as you said, they have, they've lived through tremendous things that most of us, 
it would really put us down. But the fact that they're still going, they're finding ways to cope and survive, it's powerful for them to share that story with us. But very important for us to listen. We don't have all the answers. And certainly we don't have many answers or resources to offer up if we don't know their story. I think the listening piece certainly is tantamount to what we're doing. I love the word curiosity. I had Darlene Thomas the other day was on on here and she talked about there's nothing wrong with being a little nosy if you're being nosy for the right reasons, but we're wanting to dig in. It is very hard for a lot of folks to share their story. Mm -hmm. And so building that trust relationship, I think, is critical in those beginning, well, throughout, but but in the beginning, how do you begin to start to establish trust? And to kind of tie the two things together that we were talking about in the very beginning of this conversation, but but then this next piece, how do you begin to honor each person wholly, you know, so not, oh, you're a victim of domestic violence and that defines everything about who you are or you're the ADHD person. I, that's going to, you know, trail through this whole conversation, I think. <laughs> but how do you also become culturally responsive, offer the support and then preserve that dignity? Because a lot of folks that are showing up have very different backgrounds than what we ourselves do. And so I think we're kind of like, well, I don't, I don't know you know, what makes this person tick, or I don't want to do anything that offends, or I don't want to do anything. But if you can listen, if you can build the trust. I think building trust is sort of universal to a degree. You know, if you can build the trust and listen, you can cross a lot of those cultural barriers. Right. Yeah. Because you're listening to, I think often when people tell their stories, even short stories, like you and I talked about as we started and did the coming into the present exercise, it's important to listen because sometimes people are talking about things that are most important and the priority to them. And that's very different than taking them through, again, I'm going to use those words, cookie cutter, like a cookie cutter assessment or a cookie cutter intake. We have to do some of those things in order to offer up good supports to folks and resources. But it's important to listen to what's important to that person. So if they're talking about the place of faith that they go to, we have to make a mental note of, okay, that might be a good resource and support that we're going to use with this particular survivor who I'm working with. Watching and paying attention to a survivor who has children and what they do and what their patterns are when they're in shelter. You know, we have a very unique opportunity when folks are in shelter or in residence, so to speak, and we spend more time with them because we can see more about patterns of how they do things in their family. They're the expert on their family, not us, right? And so just doing what we can to learn about people culturally. I think one important piece is to pick up on the groups that someone identifies with. So we were talking earlier this morning, a big part of who I am, if you were to ask me to kind of list what are groups that you identify with, Appalachian, you know, that's a big part of who I am. It's a thread that runs strong through me. But when we listen to survivors and talk with them, what are pieces of them? Who and what do they identify? What groups? And that may not be the right question to ask, but observe that. You know, what do they talk about? What do they like? 
just what do you notice? And it's not just about speaking. and It's also about watching and observing. And we have the opportunity to do that when people come to shelter and are in transitional housing services. We have that opportunity to watch and be present with them. Um, so it's important to watch and listen instead of telling people what to do and bossing people around. Well, there's no fun in that, Stephanie. We have to sort of do that. I have fun at that in my house yeah, sometimes. Yeah, yeah. you have to have your outlet of that. Speaking of when you're talking about Appalachian, it sort of resonates with you. And I would imagine that's true of a lot of our, you know, shelter programs and the, and the women that we serve. Right. Certainly. But sometimes you're going to get an advocate who really has no connection to that community or culture. Again, listen, let the person who's in front of you be the expert on their own lives. Ask about it. What does that mean? What does that mean for you? When you say Appalachian, what kind of comes together? Give me those adjectives. Right. Like it's a really interesting exploration, you know, to kind of kind of a social ethnography that you can kind of do. And, That's right. Yeah. And I always encourage folks too. this is not like you go through a training and certification and you're done learning. Get some books on it. Ask people, you know, what you need to read or what you need to kind of look at to give you a more robust idea of what maybe your very singular opinion might be of the Appalachian community right. or whatever community that may be. And there's a lot of tools for advocates to use for that. Listen to some podcasts, right? Or look at follow some social media groups about that. It, it doesn't have to be, you know, like. Let's go to the library and open up a journal or right. a book. Right. There's a lot of outlets, especially with podcasts now. So um, I would encourage folks to do that as well. Yeah. So one thing that I, this is going to throw you, but it's not really, it's not in your notes and the sure. conversations, but we can hone in our skill in, in advocacy and support one another, of checking each other's, you know, bias or judgment, encouraging people to listen, encourage people to build trust. We can do that. One of the things that I think happens in community settings, though, and I see this a, a lot actually in our own personal exit interviews at the at Greenhouse 17, the program I work, is they sometimes don't always feel supported by the other women in the program. And do you have any suggestions on how to build a little bit more community cohesion? Because I think we're all, we all come from this society, right? We're all quick to make some snap judgments on folks. We're not at the best space of patience, right? In the middle of trauma and, and tolerance of dealing with, you know, like, you know, we're a little all over the place. How do we sort of support the relationship amongst the women at the transitional housing or the shelter to be a, maybe a little more gentle with one another? You are throwing me a bit of a curveball, and but I'm happy to give it. I've been about it for ten years, so I don't have an answer right. either. But yeah, give it up. I'm happy girl. to give it a shot. I think after folks, I'm going to use the environment or the setting of shelter, and when folks come in and they're at a place, they get to a place after they're settled in. Crisis has maybe decreased a little bit. Some of those feelings of anxiety maybe have decreased a little bit sharing some about the world of the shelter and talking some about things that others may do that might get on your nerves, but how we work and we live in a space that's pretty tight and we have to share a lot of things and the kids are really different and everybody has different things going on, but we have to do this to stay safe with one another. And so I think emphasizing the importance that we've got to come together 
and treat one another with respect because the safety is really important. We don't want somebody to leave because a, another resident was not liking them or something like that. Just kind of going back to we're all here because we need to be safe. Yeah. And I think emphasizing that, but it's really difficult. Think about how challenging it is to just live in your own home with your own little family. Yes. And then we put to, you know, a group of adult survivors and we throw their kids into the mix and then we throw in staff and advocates and everybody has to live. And when we live, there's going to be arguments and people are going to disagree. Like you fry your food with olive oil and you use lard. Yeah. Yeah. And you may not like that. And so just kind of encouraging, we all got to make some compromises Pick your battles. Yeah. Pick your battles while you're here, you know. And but I think letting people know it's going to be normal that others might irritate you some or they don't live the same way you do or they don't keep the same level of cleanliness that you do. And put that out there, letting people know and be prepared. I think that might be the piece. I think you're absolutely right. It might not be that you're ever going to have this sort of, you know, smooth, we're all going to agree, we're all going to be kind of kumbaya-ish in the in the shelter program. And as you said, that's not atypical of any other. You know, I, we have a few folks that work for us that were RAs in dorms, same kind of stuff, you absolutely. know. And, and we had a person who used to be on our board and he ran a hotel, you know, in, in Lexington. He was like, oh my gosh, you should see the chaos at the hotel and how they leave rooms. And we have to keep remembering. We have an, a tendency sometimes to go, oh, the women at shelter and, you know, blah, 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 blah. They're just people. And we all do this and people can be messy. And to navigate every little thing, are you using olive oil? Are you using lard? That does tend to be some of the drama that can happen in a shelter program. But we do need to prepare. You know, how do you right. prepare folks to Welcome to the shelter. So glad you are here. This is a tough road. So let's just kind of be open and transparent about it as opposed to pretend it's going to be blissful. And then you're caught off guard and like, what the heck was this? Yeah. Right. I think it's about setting expectations and emphasizing, though, one thing we can guarantee you here is safety. Yes. Yes. We can guarantee that. And that's why shelters... Domestic violence programs across Kentucky are so important. Yeah, we can guarantee that. And we try to show as much, you know, we we talked a few podcasts before, and I think sometimes we feel things are a little hokey, but it, it is okay to show love and care for the people. Like, I think sometimes we get in a professional world, and I have to have this professional relationship, which is it ethically, yes, of course. But it's, but it's okay to show genuine kindness and care and love to people. I think sometimes we feel like, I don't know, oh, we're too, our boundaries are, are not as solid as they should be. And there's that balance. But you can show love and care and kindness to someone, even if it's for that day. That day they're, they're with us. Then right. show them that respect. Because if you were to ask survivors, say you were running or facilitating a group in shelter, and you asked them that question we started out with this morning, Think about the last two days and let's think about, share two things, two good things that happened, whatever that means for you. It may very well be that somebody, an advocate at program, within the program, was very kind and just listened. And I think you would hear that. You would hear those kinds of things being shared. So compassion, that's what we need to be about. And 
it's it's hard when people are, you've got people living together and in a small space and you got to share a room with somebody and you don't get to sleep with your pillow that you normally do. All those things people miss. We just have to keep remembering and reminding them, though, about the safety. That's right. why you're here. That's what we're trying to accomplish. Right. It's a short blip. It's a short blip. You can make it through it. Be yep. encouraging. I'm just going to insert or sprinkle in this quote. I, I really liked it. I never can pronounce her name, so maybe you can. But I love this. We don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. Is it Ananin? Yes. Am I saying that right? Yes, you I, are. I saw a wonderful documentary on her and Henry Miller years ago. Really good. We don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. So I think it's something always to sort of keep in our mind. What is the lens that we're looking through? And our genuine intention is to see things as they're reporting to us. So again, listen, reflect. And Ananian, this quote is so powerful. We don't see things as they are. We see them as we are. And I do, I want to elaborate on it just a moment because I think it's one of the main takeaways, if not the main, the takeaway from this. And that is, you know, we grow up, we're raised by a family or by someone, and we have values that are shaped, beliefs that get shaped, whether we use the lard or whether we use the olive oil, all those things. We have a lot of judgment about that. We yeah. got what? Well, yes, we got a lot of judgment about that. So one of the most important pieces for new advocates, new folks who are doing this work, is to remember that thing that we talk about, the golden rule. You know what I'm talking about? Have you heard people talk about the golden rule? Yes. You know, treat others the way you would want to be treated. Okay, there's some, there's some weight to that, some importance to that. But the way we want to be treated is not necessarily the way everybody else lives or what their expectations are. You know, what I expect is not necessarily what Diane Fleet expects or Lisa Gabbard expects. So, you know, we have to remember that people come to program for services and support and we know very little about their story. So... Try to think and look at everybody holistically. I'm going to go back to the holistic piece. You know, what? who is this person? Who is this family? What's important to them? What's important to them is not necessarily what's most important to me because we've got very different life stories. I love it. I've, I've had two epiphanies on this because I live that. You treat others as you want to be treated yourself. My intentions were good. And I had somebody call me out on my intentions. And it was it was not a nice thing, but it was needed. And I still am in an intention sort of person. But if my intentions were always feeding what I thought was best, what I thought the correct action should be, what I, you know, was always sort of self-centered. I wasn't looking at the person across from me. You know, I wasn't asking what they were needing. I was just hoping they would give me grace to know that I was trying to, you know what I mean? It was really, really helpful. And then I also went to a leadership class this past year and we had to do like, you know, where do you fall on the spectrum and how do you lead and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And that was a big piece that came away too. And I found out that a lot of my, how I treated folks because it's how I wanted to be, annoyed the bejesus out of a lot of people. Like I thought a lot of things that I was doing, trying to be understanding and helpful and all this stuff was really kind of annoying to some because they just either wanted an answer, 
you know, or they wanted some concrete decision or they wanted to hold accountable the team where I was much more gentle. And sometimes gentle is not what the people needed. So anyways, those two things have really sort of popped in my mind. So I'm really paying attention to to the words that you just said. Well, and I think at the same time, I'm going to contradict myself a bit. Advocates, especially when you're new coming into this field, but for seasoned advocates as well, also give ourselves some grace because this work is really hard. And you talking about the word and topic of intention, just we want to have good intentions, but sometimes our intentions are good, but they get in the way. They get in the way because other people are looking through things from a different lens, especially survivors. We may think hurrying up and talking to them about where they're going to go when they leave shelter in 60 days and get housing. We may think that's what we need to be talking with them about. But in their minds, they're thinking, we got this going on or my kid's sick or, you know, there's other priorities that they have in mind that are further down the list than the housing. And I know we have a limited amount of time with people. So that's why we try to talk about and do some of the cookie cutter things that we think we have to do. And we do need to do those. But it's important to ask. Just talk to people and ask and communicate. What do you need right now? What do you need today? It's perfect. Yeah. I think we fall into that trap quite a bit. And as you said, with, with very good intentions, with knowing our time limitation, but always circling it back. And it can be a both and. What do you need today? But we got to fill out this housing paper That's too. That's right. Right? We could do both. And it's about finding that balance. And you okay. get better at that the, with the more experience you get under your belt, so to speak. That comes easier. But it, it's hard in the beginning. Yeah. I'm going to shift a little to trauma. Can you talk a little bit about individual trauma versus collective and historical trauma? Yeah. Individual trauma is when we kind of by ourselves or maybe even in our immediate family experiences something that threatens our being. It could be intimate partner violence. It could be a car accident we were in. It could be a natural disaster like a hurricane or a tornado. It could be a medical procedure that was really rough. It could be being exposed to combat. But it's something we went through individually, and it threatened our life, or it threatened the life of someone we love, someone we know, and the way that we lived. So a pretty serious thing that stays with you. It doesn't, uh, you know, it's not like something that is really small that you may have experienced in a day, but it's something major that threatened your life, and it sticks with you. Collective and historical trauma is something we don't talk about a lot, but many of the folks that we serve in programs and services have experienced collective and historical trauma. And so one of the, I can share a couple of examples with you. It's probably easier to just talk about examples, but when you are part of a group of people that you identify with, let's just say it that way, And that entire group is affected by something that's happened in the world that can cause that entire group that you identify with to experience trauma. And it can build over time. And so 
an example, getting back to my example, I'll use is folks who are belong to a Native American tribe. They've been experiencing lots of hurt, unjust, terrible acts of trauma for hundreds of years now in this country. And they feel those effects. And it's still going on. I mean, they've had land taken away from them. They have had their children in the past have been removed and adopted to European folks that know nothing about tribal customs. Their kids have been taken away to schools that are supposed to be the right kind of schools because they think there's something wrong with the Native American schools. We can recall even recently at Standing Rock, news, pictures, descriptions, things on social media about people taking like heavy-duty, powerful streams of water, hosing little kids down. Those are all pieces of trauma and things that have happened to that particular group, Native Americans. So it's not something that happened to just one person in that group, an individual trauma that they experienced. But they are living through things together as a people, and that piles up. It adds up over time. Um, and so when a group, and we can use other groups, you know, there there's a lot of different, um, you know, we could talk about women specifically. We could talk about African Americans and the black population and all the trauma that happens there. You know, years and years of unjust, unrighteous policies um, that people have created that contribute to making things just a lot more difficult to live life just because you are a member of a group. That's those are some ways I would describe that historical or collective trauma. That was really heavy <laughs> stuff. I know. I, I, I'm I, sorry. I, no, 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 no. I'm no. I'm so glad you you went through that process. And I think, you know, again, if we're if we're really going to do good sort of solid, you know, work with folks, we need to be able to kind of see their placement or where they where they identify, right? Their placement in things, and we need to not ignore the historical, as well as don't get too lasered into just the intimate partner violence. But again, look at that person as a whole and everything they bring in the room when they enter the room. And and a lot of that can be the cultural and the historical perspective, how there may be at a space to receive love and care and services, right? Mm -hmm. Because we talked a little bit about trust before, but if you have somebody in front of you who does not trust systems, I'm not trusting you with my story, I'm not trusting you with my children. I'm just going to kind of sit here quietly as best I can and do what I need to do so that I can get this service, but I'm not going to open up because I have no trust. The frustration should not be on the for the advocate to go, she just won't come to group. She just won't whatever. But the understanding of where is that coming from and how can we kind of extend continually a relationship or a branch to maybe begin to slowly build that trust. That's so right. I mean, when someone's not talking with us in program, don't take it personally and don't think it's like a professional fail necessarily. Remember, there's a lot of reasons why people may not want to share their stories. Fear that you're going to report something to Child Protective Services. 
you know, just so many reasons that people may not want to share with us. So it's going to take some time. It's going to take some time. Then there's some things that people will share with strangers quite easily. Depends on every individual. But if they've been hurt by the system or have a reason to not trust the system, don't have the expectation that they're going to come in and just tell you everything. I also think we probably need to be thoughtful to not promise that a system will respond appropriately because our experience with that system has been positive and you just don't get this. It, like it is there for you. Sometimes it's not. No. Again, the lesson might be maybe that system is not there for that person and we need to be thoughtful. We talked a little bit about that again when we were talking with Meg and we we're talking about protective orders. We're working with immigrant communities. We need to be thoughtful about that. Is that the safest system for someone to step in? Might be, might not. But don't just presume and jump in and then maybe cause harm down the road. Because if you're building trust and then that trust laps, you can do a world of damage for that person to access and receive services down the road. Absolutely. And you want to be thinking about that. We don't want to be harmful. We want to be helpful. And uh, we have to be careful about not, you know, making sure we're not harmful or having harmful policies or rules or those kinds of things. Yeah. When you were talking about individual trauma before, one thing that combat, I think, certainly comes to play. But we were talking about tornado, hurricane. Usually it's a one-time thing, right? It's a one-time, you had tornado, one-time thing. Right. Disastrous, but one time. Absolutely. Combat, lots of traumas over a period of time, potentially. Intimate partner violence, lots of trauma over a period of time, as well as we sometimes know that the women that come in our doors have had past relationships, family members that also might bring to this, and you have the historical. So understanding, I'm shifting to distress, but understanding distress and knowing for some people that heightened sense is is always on due to the building of a continual stressful experience. Correct. Right. Okay. That's right. There are folks, you know, sometimes I often use an example. Say you're driving along one day and whatever happens, you almost are in a a car accident. Maybe you almost run a stop sign or something and you may feel like your heart or just your stomach kind of drops is what it's that feeling that you have when you go down a big roller coaster and uh, that's the adrenaline releasing. And hopefully you're like, okay, I'm safe now. There was no accident, and you start going along about your day. But as people are exposed repeatedly to trauma in the form of violence and other things you've talked about, um, family abuse that go on and on and just never stop, people, those, you end up kind of, you adapt by always staying on high alert because that's what your body is starting to understand. There's a lot of issues. There's things to be fearful about. There's things to be scared about. And it's hard to come down from that. So many of the folks, by the time they get to the point that they're actually coming into and accessing shelter support, they've experienced quite a bit of trauma over and over. So it's important to understand that even though they're behind, they're in a program behind a locked gate, behind locked doors, with others who are there to keep them safe, they don't necessarily understand that. Those words alone are not going to make them feel safe because their body has been trained now to always be on alert, be ready, be ready to be a survivor and cope. So, And one of the coping mechanisms, too, I think that a lot of folks use, and it's something that we struggle with, certainly as a program in response, is is using substances. So a way of coping with that pain with that 
you know, anxiety with that needing to just numb and check out a mm-hmm. little bit sometimes can be substance use. And that sometimes clashes with our residential programming. Right. right. Makes it difficult. It makes it really difficult. And then you'll often see sort of the coercion by abuser to be using drugs mm-hmm. and alcohol, which really kind of keeps that person under control and loses some options that that victim may have to reach out for help because they're dismissed a little bit due to their, due to their substance use. Right. And, um, you know, I'm a believer that we shouldn't do that because we need to make sure we're offering safety options, making safety available to all people. But yeah, the substance use makes things more complicated, makes it more difficult sometimes to access services, get services. And I like to believe that within our domestic violence programs across Kentucky, we're a lot more understanding about that. But when you may come into contact, when the survivor comes into contact and a police officer or law enforcement officer meets them and they're under the influence, they may not believe what's going on. You know, and that substance use, it shouldn't, but it comes into play and impact in the judgments that will be made and the decisions that will be made and the actions that are taken, not only by law enforcement, but by judges, by attorneys counselors, other systems like child welfare systems. It's like the the intimate partner violence is happening. There's no doubt about it. But for some reason, people will latch on to that use. And that's what they get. That's what their priority becomes about thinking about this person. But we need them to think about the violence and do something about that. Yeah, the, the action sort of falls in upon the victim, right? That we, As you said, we hone in on the substance use and the violence sometimes is overlooked or forgotten or minimized. And we sometimes use the substance use as causal, right? Like, well, you know, not that it's ever okay to be violent, but her behavior is this. And, and we begin to align a little bit with the abusive partner yeah. with, with that situation. I know we're getting really ready to about to wrap up. But I wanted to talk a bit about programs being responsive to that. And you mentioned a little bit in here, parallel, what was the term that you used? Parallel process. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you just sort of touch on that before we close up? Yeah. Parallel process, that may seem all kinds of fancy, but it's not. It's, it's, It's really not. It's a fairly simple concept. And it is, just to kind of use an example, how my boss and how my agency treats me and interacts with me and behaves with me will often carry on down and trickle to how I respond to the survivors I'm employed to serve. So if you give me a lot of rules as an employee and, you know, treat, you know, do things a certain way, a specific way, then I think that's how I'm going to work with survivors. Whether you think that or not, it's kind of what happens because if you're being treated a certain way every day, day in and day out, it's going to carry over to survivors. And we, you know, you have to think about as an agency, as an overall program, you know, what do we want to look like and make sure that that is integrated at all different levels of the program. And so if we ask employees to tell their stories instead of just, you know, did you do this? Did you do that? Are you following this policy? You know, did you get all your reports done? Those things are important. Like you said, they've got to be done. However, we also need to make sure employees and staff and advocates have 
chances to reflect safely with their supervisors, with agency leaders, and do that. And so by us giving them that safe space, hopefully when they're working with survivors, that will trickle down and that process will be used with them as well. But now it can also go uh, backwards a little. And what I mean by that is as advocates, you're exposed to so many traumas, so many stories. And it's not just from the survivors we work with, but the systems we work with are really difficult too. And we have to remember that the trauma that they share with us and those stories that we absorb and listen to as advocates, we take those things too. And it goes, it works upward too. the way we interact with their supervisors, the way we interact with the agency, our coworkers. So if you've just sat all day long through several emergency protective order hearings, domestic violence order hearings, and it's been a tough day where you had to deal with a tough courtroom and things didn't go well. When you go back to the shelter that afternoon for the three o'clock staff meeting, you may very well be grumpy, a Debbie Downer, because it's been a hard day. And so those the parallel process kind of goes in both directions. Things we experience with clients and survivors they affect us and how we work and how we're affected affects the overall agency too. So it goes in both directions. Um, And programs, domestic violence programs and shelters are absorbing a tremendous amount of um, trauma. It's very unique. There's not a lot of other places that are doing this kind of thing. We also have a little bit of our collective and historical trauma, right? We're sometimes fighting those systems. and so All the time. All the time. And so those things can sort of trickle in. So I just wanted to end, I guess, a little bit then with just as Stephanie sort of led in the very beginning, it's critical that we constantly do mindfulness, that we support each other, that we build relationships amongst ourselves, our advocates and our our administrative kind of leadership to make sure we have space to share and to dialogue with one another and to also kind of kick back and go, you've been stressed a little bit. You might need to take a little break. You had a hard day. It's okay to right. check out occasionally. Now, if you're checking out all the time, Maybe not so good. No, no. we can't do that because right. we're, right. we're there to do this other thing. Right. We've we've taken that role and accepted it. So that's, that's what we signed up for. That's right. And we had established, we're getting back into it. It's been a while, but Tisha Pletcher was on another, you know, podcast a little bit ago. And so, and she's talking about secondary trauma, vicarious trauma, but she had established in our program, a tree of trust, which sounds a little hokey as well. But tree of trust was... When the staff is all grumbling amongst each other rather than continue, you know, that can really blow, right? It can keep going and going. You can call a tree of trust. And we have to have some really frank and open discussion. We go outside because nature's good, right? Get outside and we actually kind of hash it out respectfully so we can move on. Because otherwise you start clicking and pitting and, you know, against one another and all this stuff. And so you know, how you handled this situation or how you show up every day or you're always late to work or I didn't like how you answered that crisis line. Let's just get it out there. And so we circle around a tree and and we do a tree of trust. I love that. I love the tree of trust and it's needed. And the other thing, and I'm sure you all have talked about this, but survivors pick up on all the nuances of the dynamics within a program. They do. I mean, think about the expertise they have in reading their the abuser. 
Yes. And they, they can, the most perceptive. They are the most perceptive and smart and intelligent. And so they cue into all of that and those dynamics that are going on on program. But I think it sounds like you've got a good method there for your program to staff to try to work through some things. And we have to, we have to confront one another a bit and just be like, okay, what's this really about? Right. And let's get on with the work. Oh, you need me to acknowledge that it's been a hard day for you. I should have done that already without you having to throw a fit. That's right. And I'm sorry. But I'll, yeah, you know, a lot of apologies and a lot of openness. So, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you everyone for listening in. This has been KCADV Certification Series Module 5. There's going to be another part to this section. But you've been listening to Stephanie Ratliff and I'm Diane Fleet. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you.